in the past uh, week or so since I saw you all last Thursday, I've had a three or four conversations with people, all of whom have uh, some experience in these teachings and practices and who are going through a really hard time and reporting a fair amount of uh, difficulty <laughs> and confusion and just questions about how to move uh, forward on their path, however, you know, both their meditation and their life path and, and for most of them, how to address uh, mental or physical health challenges, and in one case, some big questions about possible life change, you know, the form or structure of where, where, where am I going to live, what kind of work am I going to do, who am I going to work with, this sort of thing. <clears throat> the first person uh, was a student that I used to see quite a bit, and hadn't seen them for about a year and got an email and said, you know, can we, can we meet up and talk? And I'm thinking that I'd like to uh, do some practice again. I've really been out of it for, for quite a while. And, uh, you know, I miss it. I know it was really good for me. And I'm not quite sure how to begin again, even though I've, uh, I've had some time and exposure to the, to the teachings. I, want, I would like to come in and and talk a little bit about how to begin. And so we had the opportunity to meet, and she explained a sequence of events that you know, really amounted to one health challenge after the other. The physical body was, uh, to say the least, uncooperative, and really creating a lot of physical pain and making it very, very difficult to do what most of us would consider very mundane uh, things, like uh, walking, um, for example. <clears throat> Seeing correctly, you know, actually really being able to see clearly what's in, uh, what's in the room, what's in front of somebody. And we were sitting on the floor and as she was explaining to me there was not only the story what wasn't working right or feeling good in the body but there was the energy of frustration and uh, the speed at which she was communicating this kind of urgency right so the whole experience one of uh, you know being deeply unsettled deeply unsettled in the mind and body. And in fact, I think, I think much of that time with her that was of value was just giving her the opportunity to, you know, be able to share without any, um, you know, without, without having someone need to fix it, right, but just share. And then begin to talk about the practice. How, how can she do the practice again? The second person that uh, I was thinking of as I was uh, preparing for tonight was um, someone who I see every other week at least, if not more than that, who has 
a current strong practice of five or six, seven days a week, uh, five or six, five, six or seven days a week, 30 minutes meditation minimum, uh, and doing quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of reading. And we had lost touch for the longest period of time in eight months. And she explained to me that she was in and out of the hospital, uh, also caught off guard by a variety of uh, health challenges, and uh, didn't have the time and didn't have the energy to, you know, pick up the, this person doesn't live in the area, we Skype every couple of weeks. React just didn't have the energy, you know, just couldn't. Building that half an hour in to talk to me was unfathomable. And so she was coming around a little bit, feeling a little bit stronger, and, you know, put the time aside to have this, this conversation with us. And she was, again, she was going through the list of the aspects of life, aspects of having a body that were uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, she started to cry. And there was a long pause. And she said, I'm just really, really scared. Like, I'm just really, really scared. And I said, well, what are you most scared of? And she didn't know the answer right away, but again, she gave herself a period of time to just be quiet, and I didn't ask her any questions. And she said of making all these decisions alone, of making all these decisions alone, the overwhelm um, of decisions that she had to make, uh, and she is unpartnered, and feels really alone. And I think it's the onslaught of uh, physical challenge that makes her feel, in part, makes her feel even more alone, right? particularly um, for her being at a later life stage. The third person that is coming to mind didn't identify so strongly with acute physical pain but is, you know, approximately midlife and can't fathom going into work in the morning and uh, is missing her yoga practice, which she did, you know, 10 or 15 years ago and explained very clearly to me all the, all the value and benefit of, of living that way. And she's let it go for a really long time, you know, and there's some worry, you know, like, would I be in this place now if I had really maintained that uh, discipline and uh, self-inquiry and, you know, if I stayed connected to the inspiration and motivation that often comes through a life of practice. And, you know, she wanted some help, you know, it's this, this not knowing how to take the next, not knowing how to take the next step. <clears throat> But this underlying uh, discomfort that can come when our life is really out of balance, when our inner values are not matched in the outer forms of our living. You know, our relationships aren't with the right people, our work is not according to uh, what we feel we need to do to contribute in the right way in this lifetime, etc., etc., etc. This can be very, very painful for people. In all three cases, the basic conditions of life are undesirable, right? 
And we know this from our own life, that sometimes there are life stages that are very difficult. Sometimes we have the good fortune of having things go well, and you know, things are on our side. We're making good decisions. We're being skillful. Um, sometimes it, it's not distinctly, life is not distinctly painful, but it's, uh, you know, um, we're not inspired to write poetry about how awesome life is either. It's, you know, it's just, it's okay. Um, but the truth is, and, and as practitioners, we, we're probably seeing this, uh, and we talk about this a lot here on Thursdays, pain in uh, all of its variations is really an, an inevitable part of having a mind and a body. So given my relationship to these people and the role I play in their lives, I've been forced into thinking, what can really be done? Uh, what can we really do for each other to be helpful? And what is most necessary? What is most necessary in times like this? And what I often find myself talking to people about is acceptance. As I started to look at this, I, just, I realized simply that my mind goes there as a way of helping people initiate a starting point that will be relevant, workable, functional, helpful, etc. So, in the midst of reflecting on, this all happened in a short period of time that I was working with these three people, and I resumed uh, my work at hospice, which I was too busy to do for, for many, many months, and I saw my first patient this week. And I was whole, you know, I was carrying this contemplation around the role of acceptance on this path, the path of being a human being, trying to live this life, and also, of course, this uh, path of awakening, whether we identify as Buddhist or not, or mindfulness meditators, however we identify, um, you know, really thinking about the role of acceptance on this path. And I found myself in this very, uh, I just, I found myself in this situation where my teachings and my view and my ideas about how to be helpful completely fell apart, which often happens working with people who are uh, clearly dying, you know, to sit in front of somebody who's dying and say, well, just accept. So, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it almost... And I do. I try to find ways of thematically um, make, uh, making that a part of the exchange, whether I use that word or somehow try to uh, help another accept in some way. Um, I sometimes feel like it's almost an insult, in a sense. Or that I'm relying on an external idea or set of teachings that sound way too simple for somebody who's really suffering. Do you see how I might have come to this? Right. <clears throat> so in reflecting on these um, stories that the, these uh, students were sharing with me, I decided that 
for me, acceptance was still really the core. It was really the heart of, of getting grounded again, right? I mean, this is the first noble truth, dukkha. Life is going to include some inevitable level of uh, suffering, some inevitable level of discomfort. But acceptance alone is not enough, right? This is, this is what I quickly realized, that acceptance is the receptive quality of heart and mind that is willing to open to this essential truth of life. Difficulty, pain, illness, etc. But that being, but that that's half of the path, and that the other half is actually much more active or engaged. And so that there really needs to be multiple ways of looking at or answering the question, what does it take to be on this path? So, what I'm suggesting is that we need acceptance. That's the first thing. Uh, Second thing we need is engagement. Okay, yes, we're going to learn to accept. This is how it is. But not only that, there's a certain level of engagement, and I'll talk more about that. And the third piece we need is non-striving. Okay? And I'd like to try to talk about how they fit together to create a very uh, balanced approach to walking this path. Right? To being uh, actively involved in the pursuit of well-being, whether it's on the cushion or in relationship to daily life, vocation, uh, relationship to the past, relationship to um, our body, our mind, our heart. So acceptance is getting to the place where we come to terms with the truth, the inevitability of something. Uh, One of the teachers in our tradition Uh, Bhikkhu uh, Samedo, at the end of his life, was often heard to be uh, teaching simply, right now it's like this. And you've heard heard some of us say this before. Right now it's like this. Right? And despite all of the teachings focus on dukkha, somehow, and this is what I'm noticing, and particularly when life gets really difficult, even for practitioners, we almost forget. It, 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 it's, the, it's the first noble truth. And conceptually, there's often very little disagreement, but there are times in our lives when we seem unable to integrate this basic truth of life. Right? I see it particularly at the end of life, right? So right now it's like this. Right now um, I'm not comfortable with my vocation or job. Right now I don't, uh, right now my financial situation includes stress. Right now I'm concerned about this diagnosis from my doctor. Right now I'm afraid of being alone when I die. 
right now I don't like the way this meditation period is going. Uh, right now I'm really tired. So from the mundane to, you know, certainly uh, uh, more complex uh, emotional uh, experiences. I saw this recently, uh, very close to my 40th birthday. I couldn't believe it. I, I felt like I was a walking comic strip. I turned 40, and within a couple of weeks, I picked up my phone and I couldn't read it. <laughs> it was amazing. And I said, well, the phone is kind of small. It must be my phone. And, you know, and, it, and then I went to bed that night, and I picked up my book, and I, I couldn't read it. Literally, and it was like it was overnight. It was amazing. It was totally, and I said, just turned 40, you know. And my friends were asking me what it's like to be 40, and I said, well, I said, you know, I don't really think about it that much. I know I've grew up, and everyone's always talking about turning 40, and it's such a big deal, and, you know, my 30s were really difficult, and I think that my 40s are going to be great, right? And there's this sense of almost pride, in a sense, like, I got it under control. And then this happened, and, and look, Ian is like, you know, people in my family had glasses when they were much younger, and, you know, it's like, and I don't really, you know, I don't really care, and then I'll wear, I, you know, here you go, I got my glasses. So, <clears throat> the truth was, it, it really caught me off guard. There were a couple other things that were, like, noticeable, like, there are a couple things happening in the body, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, <laughs> I teach this stuff, and I'm not totally totally accepting this. I'm surprised. There was a little bit of worry, well, what's going to happen next? You know, and just, but really softening and sitting with it and saying, yeah, my eyes don't work as well as they used to. Yeah, that's actually what's happening. And in 10 years, there are going to be other things that don't work the way they used to. And in 60 years, and I, so really just um, feeling that, but first noticing how Surprised I was that it was my eyes. <laughs> that I was actually surprised. Just noticing and being honest that I was actually surprised. Right? So, I have to accept it. It's not going to change. I have to accept it. Acceptance is a softening of the resistance which causes further mental affliction and contraction in the body, which I've watched in my own life in relationship to a spinal injury. If I'm not at some level of acceptance, there's such a contraction in the mind and physical body that I end up with all these peripheral discomforts. And when I relax that unwillingness to accept the mind and body soften, and I'm not in that much pain physically. Right, so I've been able to watch over, you know, almost 12 years, I've been able to watch, you know, the minds, how the mind is playing into my physical discomfort. Right? So we need acceptance, and I want to, I want to, underscore one really important thing, which is acceptance is not, is not to say that we resolve not to make change. 
okay? Which leads us to the second important quality required to walk this path, which is ardency. Okay, now if you look, uh, I called it engagement, but engagement or ardency. At the beginning I called it engagement. Engagement, uh, I think, is a more, I mean, this is a word that feels to me more familiar. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha says that we need clear knowing, mindfulness, and ardency. These are the three qualities that he tells us that we're going to need to sustain the path. So ardency is a form of engagement or action, and this balances acceptance. Yes, we'll accept to the degree we can. But remember, that doesn't mean we've resolved to not change anything. There may be a variety of reasons to really pursue change on many levels, mind, body, externally, job, financial situation, etc., So the quality of ardency helps illuminate how to stay engaged on the path. Okay, So acceptance is the receptive quality, and ardency is the active or engaged quality. And this is, this is the task of contemplative practice, right? To balance stillness and silence with a reflective form of engagement. This is not a passive path at all. Right? This is not a passive path. So there are a few different aspects of ardency that I want to talk about. Now, if you look ardency up in a dictionary, you might find something like passion, which is okay. It's, a, it's somewhat fitting. The quality of ardency that uh, Buddha was getting at, Joseph Goldstein uh, refers to as a great care, a great care cultivated through continuity and perseverance. Okay, so this is referring to a quality of staying. Okay, this is a word I like, a quality of staying. Okay, staying with this breath. Okay, uh, staying with this difficult emotion that unexpectedly arose in your meditation tonight, or the staying with this pain in the body, staying with this 30-minute of meditation, staying with this life partner, at least for now, staying, but no, but like when things get difficult, stay, right? We don't retreat right away, stay. Um, Stay with this chronic illness, right? Turn toward it. What does it feel like in the body? What does it feel like in the mind? How is the heart being affected by this? You know, stay with this worry about the future, this fear of being alone. Stay. Stay with it. Stay with this uh, sometimes inspiring and clarifying and sometimes uh, confusing path of meditation. How do I apply these teachings to my life? Sometimes... There is no, sometimes the answer is not here when we want it to be here. So we have to stay. Stay curious, right?
So to stay requires motivation. Otherwise, it's, uh, it's too conceptual. It's theoretical, right? It stays in the realm of uh, philosophy. So this idea of staying, the possibility of ardency that the Buddha is uh, calling for in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, requires motivation. And uh, these motivations are built in to the Buddhist teachings. One is to contemplate or reflect on the preciousness of the Dhamma itself. Okay? So reflecting on how rare it is to connect with teachings and practices that liberate the heart and mind. This is a very unique opportunity. You know, if we think of all the people in the world over the history of human evolution, the amount of people that have been born into the conditions that allow access to teachings and practices that stand to liberate the heart and mind is very, very rare. So there's a way in which we're invited to really honor that, you know. We, we feel the appreciation for that, and this lends itself. It's almost like we're taking responsibility for that uh, good fortune, in a sense. You see how that could work? And we contemplate or reflect on the preciousness of this human birth, which is just a variation We are in a unique place as a human being whereby we can directly feel and become aware of suffering and do something about it. There's something very unique about our capacity as human beings. We're the only species with a self-reflective uh, consciousness. We have the capacity to see and understand suffering and to transform it. Now, this is why the human birth is said to be precious. Very, very unique set of conditions, again, that we find ourselves in as a human being. So one way of cultivating, strengthening, ardency, contemplating the preciousness of the Dharma, and reflecting on or contemplating the preciousness of a human birth. The second way is to contemplate impermanence. Reflecting on the reality that everything changes. Everything is impermanent. Decay, illness, death are all inevitable. They're all, it's all inevitable. Impermanent is the only constant, it's said, right? So contemplation of impermanence, one, supports acceptance. Contemplation of impermanence supports acceptance. Contemplation of impermanence supports acceptance. When those folks that I were describing, uh, talking a little bit about it at the beginning, there were moments in our conversations where they were able to just see, oh yeah, The body is definitely going to change, and that's going to include some pain. And I've witnessed that in so many people around me. 
just like, oh yeah, I'm fighting it. One woman even, when I, when I started talking about um, acceptance, one of the women I, that I was sharing with you about, she looked at me and said, yeah, I don't really have any of that right now. And she just saw it, just really, just really simple. Yeah, it's, that is not uh, present. And she, very, and she just, you know, you could see her whole body language. Oh, yeah. Because coinciding with seeing there was no acceptance, she was accept. She, oh, yeah, she just, you know, she accepted it more, at least, in that moment. Right? She, Two, contemplation of impermanence helps us see that desire that leads to attachment is futile. What I mean is that when we see that efforts to gratify ourselves through clinging and attachment to external means or things, when we see really clearly that that's futile, we turn back toward the inner life and try to fortify an inner sense of well-being that's much more sustainable than other forms of happiness, other forms of seeking gratification, right? So you see how this affects ardency? There's a sense of, oh, okay. I want to stay oriented toward this practice. I want to stay oriented toward this path. I want to stay oriented toward these difficult conversations or questions about vocation and money and physical health and um, my body. This particular, um, you know, one person I was um, talking to um, can't see her in person because she's in another country, but a distinct mental health crisis for the moment, you know, it's like, okay, you know. With some very disturbing uh, um, ideas, uh, very risky ideas about how to resolve that, how to do away with that pain once and for all. Staying, you know, staying in relationship to this difficulty. The third uh, way of cultivating, strengthening, developing ardency uh, on the path is to contemplate karma, okay? the meaning and implication of one of the core Buddhist teachings of cause and effect, karma. So simply reflecting or contemplating on how thoughts and words and actions either have beneficial outcomes or harmful outcomes we resolve to stay engaged in this path of earning and inquiry so that our actions provide beneficial outcomes for ourselves or other people. So, right? We just see, yeah, it's actually true that the quality of my mind affects the things that I do and the things that I say. And the things that I do and the things that I say affect beneficially or otherwise both me and others. I see that. I understand that. Therefore, I persevere. I develop continuity in relationship to this path so that I have the skills to purify the mind which leads to thoughts and actions in speech which is unharmful. So we just see really clearly. And so that it's self-motivating in a sense. Okay. 
Okay, so walking this path requires acceptance, engagement, which we are talking about uh, as ardency. And the third aspect required of the path is non-striving. And it's non-striving or non-attachment that balances the engagement or ardency. Because the engagement, the action-oriented part of walking this path can turn to pushing, striving, grasping very quickly without us seeing it. And we think we're just putting a lot of effort in. Right? And uh, this proved to be true with both of, uh, with the first two stories that I shared. These two women were pushing so hard. So hard. Um, so, and they were burnt out. They were so mentally and physically exhausted. So non-clinging is the attitude of mind that is not fixated on a particular outcome. And non-clinging comes from the knowledge that we can't even know how the path will or should unfold. So it's very open. We are still orienting ourselves toward change. Okay? Whatever it is that we want to change. Improve our health. Right? Get more money. Uh, get rid of this job. Get a new one. Get a relationship that's safer. That makes me feel more empowered. Whatever. We are working on behalf of change. But non-attachment is a form of engagement that is more oriented toward intention than fixed goals. Fixed goals uh, can have us operating on a very narrow track and we might A, miss other opportunities that our, uh, our sense of what we need or our perception of what we need didn't account for. Or we are moving toward that fixed goal this way, failing to see that we actually needed to go like this, and, but we could still get there. <clears throat> so I intend to improve my mental and physical health. I intend to live more authentically. I intend to be happier in my job. Right? Right? And there can be specific goals. I want to work in Cambridge. I want to have a relationship with a man or a woman between 38 and 44. I mean, we, you know, it's like, and what if there's somebody who's 37 in 10 months? You know, like, you know it's just like, so we know that we might not see all the possibilities. And so we're not attached to the possibilities that we do see. Yet we are oriented toward them as an exploration, for sure. For sure. The Buddha, in giving us the meditation instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta at the end, says, free from desire and discontent with regard to anything in the world. Apply yourself 
with ardency in mindfulness, in clear seeing, free from desire and discontent with regard to anything in the world, not clinging to anything in the world. So I'll close with a uh, short quote from Joseph Goldstein. Of course, for anyone who doesn't know, Joseph Goldstein is one of the original founders of Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and still very much continues to guide uh, that organization. Spiritual ardency is the wellspring of a courageous heart. It gives us the strength to continue through all the difficulties of the journey. Spiritual ardency is the wellspring of a courageous heart. It gives us the strength to continue through all the difficulties of the journey.